Good morning, everyone. Joy to be with you all this morning. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. <clears throat> Last November, maybe you have heard of this or not, uh, the software ChatGPT was made public. <laughs> maybe you have heard of it. This uh, AI text generating software, it's, it's really mind-blowing if you've looked at it, and we are definitely in the early dawn of some new life, <laughs> some era in living in artificial intelligence and all of its capabilities, but since its launch, the inventors have been watching and noting how the public has been using ChatGPT. Things like brainstorming, translating texts, coding, those are at the, the top of the list, but there was another use near the top that drew my attention, and it is that of advice. This is from an article analyzing these, these results. Uh, the article says this, life can often deliver a huge plate of misery. <laughs> it's therapeutic to just have someone or something to listen to you vent. And what if you're all alone? Chat GPT has zero judgment and will offer you logical advice and support based on swaths of self-help text. It might be just AI, but if you don't feel like you have a lot of outlets, ChatGPT could be a very practical solution. And it gives an example. User, it's so frustrating coming back to visit family when all they do is tell me what to do like I'm still a child. ChatGPT's advice is this. I understand how frustrating it can be to feel like you're being treated like a child when you're an adult. It can be especially difficult when you're visiting your family as you may feel like you are expected to conform to their rules and expectations. However, it's important to remember that your family likely has your best interests at heart even if it doesn't always feel like it. It can be helpful to try and have open and honest conversations with your family members about how you are feeling and to set boundaries to ensure that you're treated with the respect and autonomy that you deserve. <laughs> it's easy to see, I think, in our world that we live in a therapeutic age. More and more, we are surrounded by conversations like mental health and self-care, and our culture is looking anywhere and everywhere for advice. But in our advice-seeking, more and more, we don't want to be viewed as a project or as an inferior. We don't want some higher up looking down on us to fix us. We just want to be seen, quote, as we really are. We want empathy. Somebody diving in the quicksand with us and identifying with us in our struggles and telling us that we are fine just the way that we are and we need to fight for all that we deserve and to cut off anyone that might seem or we might deem toxic. And what's better suited to do that than something that has no emotional baggage of its own, like an AI text generator? In short, our culture despises hierarchy. And it despises it because it says that there are differences in this world that we can't control. And when we can't control something, the inevitable result is one of anger and fear and rejection. But what about us? What about you and me? As, as Christians, we recognize a few things, I hope, that, that we are not God. That there's a clear difference in that he created the world filled with beauty and majesty and differences and hierarchy. 
And all of it is rooted in the Trinitarian character of God and his saving works. And as we turn our attention to Exodus 18, that's exactly what we see. The character of God and his saving works being applied even to the running and administration of a nation. So, out of reverence for God's word, would you please stand as I read Exodus chapter 18. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was, was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his son and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in all that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron, with all the elders of Israel, to eat bread. He came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you, and you are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you And you will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. 
So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. God, this is your word. We ask that you bless the preaching of it. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Exodus chapter 18 comes at the end of what could be described as the testing time in the wilderness. This large section began after the Song of Moses, after the victory at the Red Sea. That's chapter 15, verse 22. And we have seen four episodes of testing and trials in the wilderness. There was the bitter water, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, and then the Amalekite invasion. And chapter 18 finishes this section by introducing to us just one more crisis, one of administration and of governing the people. But it's in this section that we have seen each time a crisis comes, the Lord graciously provides solutions, and often in unexpected ways. The water's bitter, throw a log in it. You're hungry? I am raining down breath from heaven. You need water? Go hit the rock. You're being invaded? Moses, lift your arms. (laughs) And here in chapter 18, the bringer of this news, of this new solution, comes from an unexpected source, a foreigner. And as we end this section, I believe Moses is meaning to communicate to us this main point. The salvation of the Lord brings us into a new community where God graciously provides godly leaders for the well-being of his people. The salvation of the Lord brings us into a new community where God graciously provides godly leaders for the well-being of his people. Really, during the entire wilderness excursion from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, the Lord has been graciously giving gifts to his people, even in their suffering and even in their complaining. And today, this morning, we are going to look at three such gifts that I believe this text highlights for us and for which we should be extremely grateful to God for. First, the gift of family. Second, the gift of salvation. And finally, the gift of godly leadership. First, the gift of family. With the very first words of chapter 18, we are introduced, or rather reintroduced, to the character of Jethro. As in chapter 2, verse 16, Jethro, also called Ruel, is identified as the priest of Midian. And, and this is the third priest so far listed in Scripture, all of whom have been foreigners identified with their countries. We are introduced to Melchizedek, the Canaanite, who blessed Abraham in Genesis 14. Potiphera, the Egyptian priest whose daughter Joseph married, that's Genesis 41. And now Jethro, the priest of of Midian. But Exodus 18 does not highlight Jethro's national or religious connections, but his familial connections to Moses. No less than 12 times Jethro is referred to as Moses' father-in-law. It's mentioned so much, you just want to say to Moses, the author, okay, we get it. He's with you. (laughs) Okay. And clearly Jethro had a couple reasons to seek out Moses and the people of Israel. First, 
He's family. He's the father-in-law. And it seems at some point Moses had sent his family, consisting of his wife and two kids, back to Midian while he was saving Israel in Egypt. Because Jethro here is described as bringing Moses' family back to him. Now, if you were away from your wife and kids for an extended time, upon seeing them, I'm sure the first thing you would do is run up to them, to your kids and to your wife, and to gather them into your arms and to kiss them and to rejoice. And now consider all that Moses has been through since he sent his wife and kids away. The battle of wills with Pharaoh, the plagues, the Passover, the exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, all the struggles in the wilderness. I imagine it would be infinitely sweeter for Moses. But look how it's described in verse 7, chapter 18, verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Remember, Jethro is a foreigner. He's not a Jew. He's not part of the covenantal family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet he's family to Moses. Jethro and Moses have almost nothing to connect them. No blood, no religion, no culture. And yet they are intimately connected now because of what happened all the way back in Exodus chapter 2, where the fugitive Moses saved Jethro's daughters from shepherds. Moses is a deliverer. He's a savior. And he exercised that in saving Jethro's daughters. And now they are united through Moses and Zipporah's marriage. They are family. And now the bloodline of Jethro and the bloodline of Moses are mixed forever in these two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. The names given to those boys tell the story of Moses' life. I was a stranger there, that's Gershom, but God is my helper, that's Eliezer. In naming his two sons, Moses depicts what has happened to him, stranger in Egypt that fled to Midian and the Lord helped him. But it's also what's happening to the nation of Israel. They were strangers in Egypt too, and not just strangers, but slaves bound to the land by Pharaoh through hard, slavish work, but And the land that was promised to to their father Abraham was nowhere in sight. But God came. And he delivered them from that dominion and brought them out of Egypt himself. And brought him to himself. And in doing, he has brought them into a new family. Look at Hosea 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The same is true for us. In our salvation, we are not just saved from our sin, which is massive, our sentence commuted, our status declared righteous, but we are also brought into a new family. We are adopted as sons of God. Paul says in Galatians 4 this way, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Families are so interesting, aren't they? 
in natural families, two completely separate families, likely not knowing each other at all, probably from different towns and cities, maybe from different countries or cultures, are brought together by the union of two people who become their own families. And in this way, people are united together in ways that they never would have been otherwise. But what about this family, this church family? Paul says in Galatians 4 that we're now adopted into a new spiritual family, later what he calls in Ephesians 2.19, the household of God. We call each other brother and sister in Christ because in Christ we are united in ways as intimate as family. And our families, correct me if I'm wrong, our families can be powerful influences in our lives, can't they? They can be such sources of encouragement and strength and support. But our families can also be the ones who deal us the greatest harm. These are the people who we let into our inner lives like no one else. Our parents have seen us from the very beginning. There's no faking around them. It's our dads we're trying to impress. It's our moms we're trying to get off our backs and let them know that we can do this on our own when we really usually can't. And it's people in our community, our gospel community, our family that we let into our inner lives, our joys, our celebrations, our sufferings, our fears, our decision-making. We help each other move. We bring meals when a new life is welcomed. We cry and we hold each other when there's a miscarriage. We support one another when there's job loss or illness. Families are God-given gifts. And they're given to be the first source of growth, of development, of strengthening, of encouraging, of backing up, of sending out. We're always there for one another, no matter what. That's what families are. That's how important family is. Family means everything. It's one of the sweetest gifts God has given us. That the first people we call when trouble comes, and the ones who are with us through the ups and the downs. And in Exodus 18, we see a happy reunion. And Jethro is wondering, are the reports of all this, these crazy things that have happened true? And happily, they're all true. Number two, the gift of salvation. So Jethro set out from Midian to find Moses and the Israelites because he had heard all that God had done for Moses. And he finds them encamped at the mountain of God. And after the opening pleasantries, they each ask each other about their welfare and head into the tent to discuss. And what a story Moses has to tell. Jethro had heard some interesting stuff from Moses before. Remember, before leaving for Egypt, Moses went to Jethro to ask permission to leave, likely having to explain to him that his instructions have come from a burning bush. But Moses recounts, and probably like all dads, in way too deep of detail, Everything that had happened from when he had last seen Jethro to now. What is at the heart of that story? Deliverance. Deliverance. Deliverance from the hardship of Pharaoh. Deliverance from the hardship in the wilderness. And all of it from the Lord. Three times in these two short verses, the Lord's name is mentioned as the one who is doing all the delivering. Yes, Moses has been raised from, up from childhood to be this, quote, deliverer, but there is no doubt 
in anyone's mind who it is who is doing all the actual delivering. It's the Lord. And chapter 18, verse 1 tells us that Jethro had heard all that God had done for Moses and the Israelites, and now he hears it straight from the man himself. And how often do we think on and recount on and tell about our salvation? As with the Israelites, we did not pull ourselves up out of sin and slavery, but were delivered by God himself. And that is a gift, an unmerited, unearned, gracious, and glorious gift. How often do we consciously stop and consider the cosmic realities and miracles that had to happen in order for you and for I to be saved? And how often do we thank God for he and he alone is responsible for our salvation. Look at how David describes it in Psalm chapter 40, 1 through 5. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And that's the goal of our recounting proclamation. It is worth recounting our salvation and thinking on the saving works of God in order to declare it to those around us. That's what Moses did. He recounted to his father-in-law, a foreigner, all that the Lord had done for them, how he had brought them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, supplied every need in the desert, and carried them all the way to here. Don't downplay the saving works of God in your testimony. The result, Jethro rejoiced. And his rejoicing wasn't simply that Moses was safe, but he rejoiced in the Lord that led to blessing the Lord. Look at 10 and 11. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. What Jethro had only heard of in verse 1, he now knows that the Lord is the Lord of lords. This is a come and see religion. And he has come and he has seen. He has, the Lord has conquered the gods of the Egyptians. He destroyed their army at the Red Sea and defeated the mighty Amalekites. And it is in this acknowledgement, this mental agreement, that leads to worship. That's the power of your testimony. I know when we, we share our stories in missional communities and we hear others' stories, it's without fail. It is without fail a powerful encouragement for all who hear. It leads us to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. So, think on your salvation regularly. And never tire telling the story. Because we love to tell the story, don't we? Number three, the gift of godly leadership. 
The next day, it must have been take your father-in-law to work day, because Jethro sits and observes all that Moses does for the people. What a strange day that would be. And what he witnessed was a constant stream of people with their problems and their disputes looking for answers from God through Moses. In a sense, Moses is operating like a prophet who speaks for God, a priest who mediates between the people and God, and a king who can rule and judge the civil affairs of the people. And it doesn't take long for Jethro, because he's a wise and good man, to notice that there is just no way Moses by himself can do what he's doing for two to three million people. That's a whole bunch of disputes to be resolving. And here we have the fifth and final crisis in the wilderness, administrative disorder. <laughs> and notice, Jethro doesn't just say, hey, hey have you tried this. No, he just up and tells Moses what's happening is, verse 7, not good. It's not good for Moses, and it's not good for the people of Israel. Moses is on the verge of burnout because there's no way he can get to all these people, and all the people are not being served. And so they are suffering because all of this is falling on one man's shoulders. So Jethro proposes delegating the work, spreading the load out on many shoulders rather than just on Moses's. This will both relieve Moses from the tremendous workload, but also actually be more effective in making sure that all the disputes are addressed. It's both effective and efficient. And really, Jethro is taking the saving work of God in the deliverance he just celebrated and applying it to the everyday lives of the Israelites, all the way into their civil government. The new setup will ensure that the statutes and laws of God are enforced in the whole of the camp, all of the time, in everyday life. And that is good. This is not like Egypt, where there is one man sitting on top, ruling with fear and judgment, but a dispersion of weight and of load-bearing rulership. The type of men that Jethro tells Moses to look for are, quote, able men. Able men are those who fear God, hate even the thought of taking a bribe, and ultimately are trustworthy, who are able to bear the burden with him. Like Samwise Gamgee on the slopes of Mount Doom, they may not be able to carry the heavy load of being the leader of this massive assembly, but they can carry Moses and make the load a little bit easier by judging disputes among the people. Now, our modern egalitarian society, culture, hears this type of hierarchical system and despises it. Any hierarchy, any ordering of degrees immediately assumes that there are oppressors and the oppressed. You set up this type of leadership structure where the few have power over the many, and you will have or have already abused the people who are at the bottom. We want to flatten everything. The very thought of someone having more responsibility or more quote-unquote power than someone else by nature is a wicked thing. According to the modern pagan mind, hierarchies are just social constructs that people in power set up so that they can keep and maintain power and keep others below them. 
And of those things that are socially constructed, gender is right at the top. The binary between men and women is just a system constructed by white European men to control and enforce everyone into a system to keep them and to maintain power. I'm not a man or a woman. I've just been forced into a system of binary and hierarchy that tells me this is how a boy should act or this is how a girl should act. In order for me to be truly free, I need to break free from these social constraints and to live out my authentic self. Maybe you've heard something like that. But the issue with all that nonsense is that we live in God's world. And the world God made is hierarchical and good. And it's not flat and the same, but different and beautiful. Think if Beethoven had written his seventh symphony using one note. Think if Terry Redlin would have painted the South Dakota prairie scape with just one color. And think if we didn't have within civil societies rulers and authorities. It'd be chaos. Just like in Israel, in the desert, it would be chaos. The world is hierarchical. Your workplace is hierarchical as you respect and submit to your superiors. Families are hierarchical as, you, as they wholly depend on, particularly through the fathers, respect and submit to the home. Your salvation was hierarchical as you are wholly dependent on the saving grace of God to save you. Hierarchy is a good gift and a beautiful thing. And Jethro here applies all the good of God's saving works into the very administration of this assembly. He sees it all connected. If you're going to be God's people, you need to function well. So the Lord hasn't just given Israel a gift of leadership in Moses, but apparently he provided the nation with many able men who were able to bear the leadership burden. And as a result of this delegation process, isn't, it's not oppression and abuse, but rather, look at verse 23, peace. As we look at our chaotic world, nation, state, city that we live in, it, it, it's right for us as Christians to seek the peace of our city by asking our civil governments to be led by able, trustworthy, God-fearing men who hate bribes but love justice and God's laws and statutes because they are good. I imagine if we had more of that, we'd experience peace. And the same is true in the church. The call from Jethro to find able men rings similar to what Paul tells Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I am convinced that our world and our church and our marriages and our families, what they need most is faithful men. Faithful and able men. God-fearing, trustworthy men. Those are gifts from God. And like all gifts from God, they are to be received And we are to receive them with joy and gladness and by faith, trusting that all that he gives is for our good and not for our harm. And because we know this gift giver, we can thank him. Thank him for all the good that he 
gives. He supplies. He's the one supplying every single need in the midst of a desert. Water, bread, protection, family, salvation, and leadership. And the ultimate gift that we have been given is the person and work of Jesus Christ, who not only saved us from our sins, but has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. All human authority derives its just rule only because Jesus, King Jesus, delegates to able and trustworthy men. And he is good and a just king who is bringing all enemies under his feet. Like we sang this morning, he will reign forever. And the glory of him will fill the earth. So, we give thanks to God For King Jesus, who is a good king, in whom we have forgiveness of sins, a new family, and a new life. Let's pray. Oh God, we do give thanks to you for Jesus, for his rule and his reign, and for the grace that he has given us, first in our salvation, in opening our eyes so that we might see his glory, the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. Father, I pray that your grace would work in us to see you more clearly, that your spirit would work in this family to unite us to one another. Thank you for, for the gospel functioning in the lives of these dear saints as we serve one another and encourage one another and lift up one another. We thank you, God, for you are supplying every need. You do give good gifts, Father. And we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. You have not left us alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.